Welcome to Spotlight, a Bournemouth University series exploring the people and stories behind the research. On today's episode, we caught up with Professor Rick Stafford, a marine biology and conservation expert at Bournemouth University. His research has increasingly looked at climate change and biodiversity loss and what can be done to affect real, lasting change. Climate change is never out of the news, whether it's the Green New Deal proposal, the spread of fires in the US and Australia, or the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Summit. We all hear that we need to be doing more to reverse climate change. So, is it a case of remembering our reusable coffee cups on the way out of the door? Or do we need to change our diet? Or do we need to be doing even more to be playing our part to protect the place we call home? We'll let Rick take over and tell us what his research has found. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. So tell us, what, what does what does a marine biologist, conservationist do day to day? It can be all manner of things. So my my research really is in a whole variety of fields. It used to be very much on sort of rocky shores and looking at um, how intertidal animals respond to things like um, climate change. Um, so as it's getting hotter, are they changing their behaviours? Is that going to have an influence? Can we use a simple system like some snails to actually look at what will happen at a more uh, sort of complex um in a more complex ecological community um conservation wise it's a bit more about understanding how we can get changes to be made um so conservation really is about working with nature and people simultaneously so how can we get how can we get things um we know we know certain things work in terms of benefiting the ecological communities, but how can we get them to benefit the human communities as well? And how does one get into that line of work? Were you just a bit of a nature nut growing up, or was there something specific that kind of took you in this direction? I wasn't really a nature person, to be honest. Um, the truth is, we used to do a lot of things like crabbing when I was younger. I grew up just down the road, and um, myself and my brother would do this, and he would... Uh, make a little notebook you'd know exactly how many crabs we caught each day I had no interest in any of that at all and I've become a marine biologist and he's been working in a bank so I don't quite know how that works um, but I, I, I'm interested I was interested in sort of systems and how systems work and ecology is a great sort of example of that you've got loads of different interconnecting bits um, they all influence each other and that's kind of expanded out now as well so you know you can also look at how the social systems interact with the, the natural systems that's how i got into it i think most people are very keen on a specific species or a particular type of habitat but for me it was more the underlying science and uh, as you've progressed into your career you've been doing more and more in the area of climate change so it hasn't just been monitoring and looking at ecosystems but actually how climate change is having such a big effect on those ecosystems could you talk to us a little bit about that yeah, I mean it's it's the big issue of the day really. I mean there's 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 a few issues which all sort of are interconnected. So climate change is a big issue, biodiversity loss is a is a big issue and obviously everybody's heard of things like plastic pollution and other sorts of pollution which are sort of major drivers. Um so to not look at these things is really it's you know it's it it wouldn't be right not to be looking at these they are the major the major issues that not only nature but society uh faces as well and you hit the headlines a little while ago for um suggesting that there are actually things like overfishing and sharks that have a greater effect on climate change than perhaps plastic pollution on its own yeah i mean the, they are separate issues obviously they all cause stress and what we know from understanding natural systems is basically 
you have multiple stressors and those individually can be bad but combined can have a, a bigger effect than they would do even if you just added them all together um but there has there was a a huge emphasis in the last few years and i guess as a marine biologist i was always asked oh what about plastic what about plastic so when you really start looking into this it's not such a big issue as people say i'm not trying to say we should not worry about plastic at all quite the opposite but i think it was used very much as a focus to we can buy our way out of plastic pollution essentially we can stick with a consumerist society um we can all buy reusable water bottles we can all buy a disposable coffee cup that's not really saving the planet but that seems to be that was the message which seemed to be going forward um, but there are bigger issues so yeah overfishing is destroying biodiversity in the seas it's by far the biggest cause of biodiversity loss um, and climate change is having a bigger and bigger effect so we see things like the bleaching of the great barrier reef and that's almost entirely down to climate change and nothing nothing else and you know the work that you've done and you and your colleagues here at the university have done how does that um dovetail into into that um so my work is trying to my current work at least is trying to look at how we can begin to address these multiple issues and actually make a real difference um so there's there's several levels that could work out you know there is there is that consumer uh system essentially of of we go and buy um a bamboo toothbrush or a uh a, a disposable yeah, a non-disposable water bottle um so that's that's one level but i don't necessarily think that that links into real change um for real change what we really need to be doing is to look at um large scale changes system change i know that's been sort of encapsulated with the whole sort of school strikes and the extinction rebellion kind of idea that we need system change not just uh system change not climate change um, which is absolutely true but what does that system change look like what do we need to you know how, how does that actually come about what, what processes need to go in place um, so some of my my latest work is basically saying well things like green new deals which have been proposed in america and in europe and to some extent in the uk as well you know how effective would they be um, and the answer is it depends exactly what you do as part of a green new deal if you just invest in green technology and try and promote economic growth it probably doesn't have much of an effect but if you really tackle things like fossil fuel subsidies um, and you know sensible taxes on things which pollute then it can it can have a major effect and it can really reduce the uh, greenhouse gas emissions but it can also really reduce things like um, even things like social inequality um, nature-based solutions, so things like planting trees, uh, seagrass beds, reed beds, things like that's another another really sort of strong thing. And the really interesting thing is that those two things work together really well. So the best sort of solution you can have to address all of the environmental problems is partly political reform, economic reform, which isn't necessarily a strong degrowth of. Uh, it's not degrowth. It's not a reduction in economic growth, but it isn't continued economic growth, which is the situation we normally look at. Um, but we can also combine that with planting trees, restoring peatland, better agricultural practices, better fishing practices, and that will have that will have a major effect. So I, w- I wonder, you know, one of the one of the ways I think that the plastic revolution, as it was, had had such a a, a widespread um, 
uh, buy-in from people was because it's easy, isn't it? You've got that, there's something very tangible that you can see, okay, well, I've got my water bottle that I'm going to throw in the bin and I've got this one that I can keep and reuse. And that seems like a very meaningful thing that I can personally do, but actually it doesn't affect my life in any way other than I need to remember to pick the bottle up off the kitchen side before I walk out the door. Whereas a lot of the things that you're talking about actually are more systemic changes. They need to be government down. And um, Is there anything that we as kind of Joe Public can do to, to make a difference to that other than lobbying our MPs and things like that? I think the biggest things that can be done really are lobbying MPs, can be uh, participating in the climate strikes. It, it's about creating that situation where people, governments need realise they do need to respond. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what it is really. It's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's more than that. I mean, it's nothing to say you shouldn't be carrying a water bottle around and refilling it that makes complete sense it's economic sense as well as you know as well as environmental sense so it's not that those measures shouldn't be done it's just that we also need to do those bigger things to try to create that that bigger change as well and that like you say comes at a governmental level doesn't it that that's those green new deals in the us and the uk and the the proposals that have been put in place that cover a wide range of agricultural um environmental factors that actually ultimately are affecting the things that you see day to day in your work yeah absolutely it's it's about it's about those big changes it's about making those really big changes to the way that essentially the economy works if you have continued economic growth even if you do that through things like green growth so you know you're um, looking at investing in uh, sort of green energy or something like that problem is you get more money into the economy, people spend more, uh, you, you're just making more things for the sake of it. It's that sort of continuous consumerism um, and that uses up valuable resources. Uh, so even if it's not directly contributing to climate change, it's probably using up land which could be used for uh, wildlife or reforestation or all of those things. So it's, yeah, it's about, it's about large scale government changes. So in that sense, I suppose there is more that Joe Public could do in terms of um, not just thinking about the way that they consume water, but actually consume goods, you know, rather than than, um, throwing things out the second they don't work optimally, working to uh, restore them instead and um, perhaps looking at the way that we our diet impacts on um, the wider kind of agricultural land use and things like that. There is, but of course, it's again very difficult to make those those changes at the individual level. Um, So... A lot of things are actually designed to be thrown out. Um, so once they start, once they stop working, you throw them out, and that's actually part of you know it's part of the design process because it means you're buying more goods and you're keeping that economic growth circle going. So there is the idea of the circular economy, which is really making things reusable, repairable, um, you know, and making sure that things stay in uh, stay all goods sort of stay in a uh, in a almost a a life cycle, I guess. That they 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 serve the maximum benefit for and once they are uh, of no use they can at least be broken down into individual components then reused that way yeah in terms of agricultural changes and and sort of fisheries changes and things um, again it's quite even if you just change your diet it can be quite difficult to know exactly what the effects are you know so we we've heard things like dairy are bad but equally almond milk uses up vast amounts of water in places like california and contributing to the fires in places like well in california particularly so it, it is difficult to make those decisions in an informed basis as a as an individual which is really where the the large changes come into play 
It does sound difficult, doesn't it? Because I, I, I do think nowadays everybody feels that personal responsibility. We really do need to get out and, and see that change at a governmental level rather than just in individual homes. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things is a lot of people are scared of that big change. They don't know what it's going to be like. And you know, the truth is we don't know what will happen if we don't have economic growth. There's, there's certainly different theories behind that, um, but nobody really, really knows. So one of the things... One of the other pieces of research I've done kind of gives an example, I guess, of what these uh, sort of systematic changes would look like. And I don't I don't think they sound that scary. So some of my research into fishing, essentially, we've massively affected ocean ecosystems by fishing. And even if we're fishing sustainably, it means we're basically taking about 70 percent of the population of those of those particular fish which we're fishing out of the sea in order to fish sustainably. Um so 70% of the, of the population is gone by the time we're fishing sustainably. And that's a huge change to those ecosystems. What we could do is we could create very large marine protected areas. And one way of doing that is to basically limit fishing just to the inshore regions. Um, so within sort of 10 or currently 12 nautical miles from the coast. Um, if we do that, what we might be able to find is that well, firstly, we've got large marine protected areas. Those fish stocks can recover. Um, they do move, and they do move into the coastal waters, so it will probably increase the catch for local uh, inshore fishermen. But also, 65% of the fishing industry, say in the UK, is actually based in the inshore uh, inshore fisheries, even though they have a very, very, very small percentage of the overall quota. In some cases, no quota at all. Um if we're using inshore fisheries, they're also going to be landing locally. So you can imagine all the sort of fishing towns up the east coast, um, which have now, you know, some of the most deprived areas in the country. We'll have an industry back. There's fish processing which can be going on. Um, so there's a lot more which could actually be doing to regenerate those those economies. Um, what would actually happen is the amount of fish we catch goes down a bit. Probably the price of fish goes up a little bit. And we might have to have things, um, we might have to eat things which we're not normally necessarily thinking that we'd, we'd eat. So we don't catch that much cod, for example. We catch, particularly on the south coast, we catch far more flatfish and then we export those to Spain and import cod. But if we're prepared to sort of accept that we have to pay a little bit more for what's a, a really sort of um, a wild caught food, then we can see how that economy works. It becomes much more local, it creates more local jobs. It probably doesn't. It probably reduces the overall economic growth of the country, but it probably increases the growth, or the, or at least the flow of money in the local region. Um, it's not a huge change. It's it's a it's it benefits most people. To be honest, the only people it doesn't benefit are probably the very rich people who own large amounts of the fishing quota. So it's it's that sort of change that we're kind of looking at, and it's for most people it probably would actually be beneficial. Um, so I don't, I don't think these system changes should be thought of as massively scary. I think they should be embraced by most people. I think they'll have positive benefits. And I guess we all need to get used to eating a little bit more flatfish in our diet as well. Flatfish and shellfish, in fact, yeah. There's, there's a lot of that which we catch locally and most of that gets exported. Oh, there you go. That's something we can do. And um, you've also done a, a lot of work looking at um, restoration of reefs, right? You're super, supervising a PhD at the moment that, that's looking at that. Um, you talked to us a little bit more about how those sorts of things might actually be able to help as well. Yeah, so um, 
We've got a few projects looking at restoration of, of reefs. Um, so some of them are in the UK. Um, I'm about to start one next year out in Indonesia as well. Um, so we know things like coral reefs are declining and around, in, particularly in, in temperate regions, things like kelp forests are beginning to decline as well. Um, they're important for for various uh, so kelp forests are very important for things like lobsters um, but also as nursery grounds for fish and coral reefs sort of in the same way um, and also very very important for tourism as well so can we basically projects are looking at can we begin to replicate some of the um, ecological processes which occur on natural reefs if we put in artificial structures um, and beyond that as well, rather than just looking at that, do they support the local community? Do they support the people that live there? Do they benefit those? Um, so, for example, in the project in Indonesia, um, at the moment, we know that um, uh, the there has been a marine protected area set up, and that's now viewed very favourably by the local fishermen, because actually it's increasing their, their catch of fish. So there can be benefits of these things as well. But it is a small-scale way of replicating what we're losing through, through things like climate change. We're not going to be able to have artificial reefs which replace every single coral reef. So it is very much a localised process. So can you give us examples of who's doing it well, appreciating that actually for us to be able to reverse a lot of this um, climate change damage that has been done and for us to make real change, it needs to happen at a systemic level. Um, are there governments initiatives examples of things in countries where you think actually if we if we took a leaf out of their book we would be uh, well on our way to, to doing a good job I'm not entirely sure there are at the moment um, there have maybe that's part of the problem in itself then the fact that actually nobody's doing this well and 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 we all need to work harder at lobbying and and um, uh, and um, just showing how much it, it means to us yeah, I think they do. I mean, there, there are examples. So, you know, as we talked about the Green New Deal, and obviously that's been put forward as a proposal. It was put forward uh, particularly by the Green Party and the Labour Party in December. Um, those are those are big systemic changes, and that they could make a major difference. Um, those are the sorts of things that do need to be done. And I know they're talking about implementing Green New Deal in, at the European Union level, and we'll see how that goes, see how things like the elections in the in the US go as well, and whether it could be on the table there. Um, those are the sorts of things that do need to be done. Great. And then my, my final question, and I think we've touched upon it a lot as we've been talking, but uh, you know, what more can we be doing uh, to, to help support... Um, both your work and also the, the the climate change effort. The only real things you can do as an individual, and again, you know, there's a small change that you will make. But actually, thinking about flying, flying causes a huge amount of um, of, of climate uh, of of warming essentially. So, so one return trip to the US is basically your carbon budget for the entire year. Um, that's not the plane is your current high carbon budget. That's you as an individual on the plane gives you entire carbon budget for the year and there is certainly something around diet and while probably the easiest way to say is a vegan diet is by far the most environmentally friendly it's not always quite that simple things like farm shellfish can actually have a lower carbon input than um, than even uh, our vegetables so that those are probably the two things that you could do as an individual but really the biggest thing you can do is to uh 
do everything you can to try to support large-scale changes. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Rick. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. So whether it's changing your flight and travel habits or reaching for the flatfish next time you eat or making your voice heard when it comes to matters of climate change, we hope you found Rick's research thought-provoking. Thanks for listening and join us again on Spotlight and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud to hear more audio from Bournemouth University.